Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, like Andy said, my name is John Lightbody. I'm a pastoral candidate here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd just love to say hello uh, after our worship gathering here this morning. Um, also, if you're new or visiting, again, welcome. We are like genuinely glad that you're here this morning. We would just love to help you get connected to our community here at River City Church. I'm excited as well to welcome you today to the close of our fall sermon series in the books of First and Second Thessalonians. So if you're new, uh, you haven't been hearing the rest of this series, just a bit of background. Uh, First and Second Thessalonians, these are letters that were written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in the ancient city of Thessalonica. And uh, Paul and his friends Silvanus and Timothy, they had planted this church and they preached the gospel there for about three weeks, uh, building up these new believers. And then they were chased out by these persecutors who had rejected the message about Jesus. And after some time, Paul starts to get concerned, and he sends Timothy to go back into the city and sneak in and check and see how this young church is doing. And the report that Timothy sends back is that not only is this young church surviving, they are actually thriving in the midst of persecution. And as we've seen like throughout this series, the central theme in Paul's letters is about how Jesus' future return fundamentally transforms the way that we live today. And as we anticipate Jesus returning to usher in like his kingly rule and to destroy evil and to bring in the new heavens and the new earth, that this produces a sanctifying hope in us. And in the last few weeks, as we've been speaking through what Jesus' return will look like, uh, we've been talking about some confusion that the Thessalonians had. Uh, some had thought that maybe the day of the Lord had already happened without them. Some thought that maybe it was just right around the corner um, and Paul wrote like in love to this church to clarify some things that they were misunderstanding and to like encourage and bolster their confidence that because of faith in Jesus, they could stand with confidence in the day of judgment. But in our passage today, Paul's going to take like a hard left turn to another topic. And what we're going to see is that for a relative minority within the church, that idleness has become a major problem, right? And and idleness is all about like being lazy and spending your time doing things that just really aren't constructive, right? And this idleness was also causing people to be busybodies, right? Meddling and pry into the affairs of others. And this morning, we're going to see that Paul addresses this issue head on. And what I'm excited to show you in our passage this morning is that because idleness has a severely negative impact on others, Christians should be characterized by engaging in meaningful work, right? Because idleness has a severely negative impact on others, Christians should be characterized by engaging in meaningful work. Because you see, idleness, it can be destructive because not only does it keep someone from taking care of their own needs, it keeps people from taking care of the needs of others as well. And what's worse is like when Christians are idle, it spreads a lie about who God is and and what he's like. So this morning, we're going to talk about like what's going on in Thessalonica. We're going to discuss Paul's approach in dealing with these idlers. We're going to talk about why idleness is such a serious thing. And finally, we're going to just talk through like how the gospel motivates and empowers hard work under the glory of God and for the good of other people. Uh, this passage is immensely practical and helpful. I cannot wait to show it to you this morning. So let's, let's pray and dive in here. So God, uh, and I just sense like my need for you this morning. Um, ultimately, like we just need you to help us really believe the gospel and apply it to our lives. And so we just pray that, man, just for our good, for your glory, that you would make that happen this morning as we preach through these texts. Amen. So, we're going to take a step back into 1 Thessalonians briefly and talk through just a couple of verses there that pertain to this topic, and then we'll be focusing on our, our larger passage in 2 Thessalonians. 
Sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. It says this, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life might win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. And then 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we were night and day laboring and toiling so we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have a right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. And such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instructions in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. This is the word of the Lord this morning. So I want to start this morning by looking at our shorter passage from 1 Thessalonians here. And what Paul is really doing is he's giving some practical instructions for what should characterize Christians in terms of their work. And he gives them a few simple things here, right? They should lead quiet lives. They should mind their own business. And they should work with their hands, right? And for us, this is sort of like the Midwestern playbook, right? Like a lot of the instructions here, this isn't something we necessarily struggle with understanding. These seem like really uh, basic points. And if someone's worthy of respect in our culture, these are just the things that they need to be doing, okay? So I don't think in this brief passage we're hearing anything too surprising right on the front of it. And what's more is like throughout Paul's two letters, the overall tone and emphasis is one of, one of like affirmation and encouragement for this church, right? If you've been uh, listening to this sermon series throughout the fall, um, you might remember how in 1 Thessalonians, right out the gate, Paul says, we always thank God for all of you. And we remember before God, our Father, your work produced by faith and your labor prompted by love. Later in verse 7, he commends them and says that they became an example to all the believers in the region because they believed the gospel in the midst of a lot of trial and persecution. Right, so Paul's throughout the letter constantly thanking God for the work that God is doing in these Thessalonians. But in 2 Thessalonians 3, right, we, we see Paul taking this corrective step, and there's this shift in tone because there is a minority of people who are being idle. Right? And, and rather than minding their own business and, and working with their hands like Paul instructs, they're, they're being lazy and they're meddling in the affairs of others. And I think before we dive into what's really going on here in Thessalonica, there, there's a couple of guardrails we have to set up so we know what we're talking about, right? And the first is that Paul is clearly addressing those who are able to work. He's not talking about like people who are too old or are retired, maybe people who've lost their job and can't find one or they're unable to work for a variety of reasons, but the second guard where we have to put up is that like, this is a family matter. What I mean by that is that Paul is an apostle writing instructions to the church. So Paul in this passage, he's not making a commentary on matters of the state like, like welfare or something. That's, that's not his point. 
Rather, this is a letter to the church with instructions to the church. And, and that's who Paul is talking to when he says, the one who does not work shall not eat. Right? And so it's, it's fine to have opinions on those political matters. That's okay. But like, that's not what this passage is about. We need to remember that as we're talking through it. And you see, when it comes to understanding the idleness in Thessalonica, the commentaries I've read, they have a number of different theories on what might be going on. You see, one is related to this confusion about the end times. As we've already been talking about, the Thessalonians had a lot of questions about Jesus' return. There was a lot of confusion on this topic. And for some, they thought that Jesus might be coming back any second now. And so for them, if Jesus is coming back on Saturday, it seems weird to go to work on Thursday, right? But for others, it, it may have been this idea in the ancient Greco-Roman world that for many, they believed that physical labor was like beneath them, right? It was often seen as something fit for only slaves to do or servants. And the truth is, like, we don't know. And where the Bible is ambiguous like this, we just need to be okay with the fact that we don't always have the reasons why, but the bigger point the scripture is making is clear, right? And that's that whatever the reason is, that this disobedience of these idlers, right, it's something that is high-handed and persistent and arrogant, and this is something Paul has had to address with them multiple times. In verses 7 and 8 of our passage, we see that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, when they were there, they worked a manual job in front of these believers, right? He says, we were not idle when we were with you. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so we would not be a burden to any of you. And we did this not because we don't have the right to such help, because they were missionaries. They could ask for funding, but no, they said, in order to give you a model for you to imitate. We won't do that. And so it, it seems likely or at least possible that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy already saw this as a problem with some in their culture, and they wanted to give them a model to imitate. Later in verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 3, we see that Paul had instructed them to work with their hands when he was there. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, our first passage this morning, we see that Paul in his first letter addresses this issue. And his language is largely kind and, and soft. And then finally, he writes to them yet again in 2 Thessalonians 3, and the tone becomes much more forceful. Finally, here in our, our second passage this morning, we see that Paul has become exasperated. Right? We see the, the seriousness that Paul's language invokes in verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you to keep away from every believer who is idle. And then later in verse 12, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. John Stott, when writing about this passage, says, what is striking now is, is not so much the instructions Paul gives as the authority with which he does so. Paul could not be any clearer or stronger in his language against this idleness. In fact, Paul is so serious, he actually gives specific instructions to the rest of the church on how to address these idling, meddling individuals. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, he says, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive. And later in verse 14, he says, take special note of anyone who does not obey our instructions in this letter. Do not associate with them. Right, so here we see the, thes the situation in Thessalonica. It has gotten to the point where Paul is instructing the church to work through a formal discipline and restoration process. You see, when like, there's a situation of really serious, destructive, arrogant, repetitive, and unrepentant sin, this is to be lovingly addressed in a formal way by the church. And that's this process of like church discipline 
and restoration. And I don't have enough time this morning to work through all the details, but what you need to know this morning is that Paul is working through a process that Jesus outlines in Matthew 18, and that's something you can read if you want to know more about this. But the biggest thing you need to know about this process is like consequences are ramped up and the the seriousness of this rebuke is ramped up is that the goal is always, always to see the offending party restored to the body of the church and brought back into the community. Look again at verse 14. It says, do not associate with these people in order that they may feel ashamed, yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Right? And this passage isn't saying never talk to them and like shun them Amish style, but that there's like this exclusion from the worship gathering and this intimacy with the community because they need to see the seriousness of their sin. So all this to say, right, Paul is incredibly serious about the sin of these idlers. So that should lead us to ask a question. Why? Like, why is it such a big deal people don't work? Why is it such a big deal that these people are not laboring intentionally? Right, oftentimes when I think about church discipline, if it's a concept you're familiar with, I think about like embezzlement or adultery or something like that. Why is Paul invoking this discipline for these people who are idling? Let's take another look at our first passage. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 11, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that, right, here's the reason why, so that what? Your daily life might win the respect of outsiders, so you will not be dependent on anybody. So Paul exhorts the church to work for two reasons here, so that they will win the respect of outsiders and not be dependent on anybody. And that's because Paul understands that the reputation of Jesus is all tied up with the reputation of his people. These two ideas are are linked. The reputation of Jesus is tied up with the reputation of his people. This is the first reason why Paul takes this idleness so seriously. And you need to understand that when Paul tells them to win the respect of outsiders, right, he's not trying to say, hey, go win the approval of the world and make sure that they really like you. Rather, he's working to ensure that the reputation of the gospel is unblemished by the sins of the church. Paul's concern for the spread of the gospel is really apparent. In last week's passage, we talked through 2 Thessalonians 3, and in verse 1, he says, pray for us that the message of the Lord, that's the gospel, might spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. See, guys, like there are many obstacles in the way of your friends and neighbors and coworkers believing in Jesus, and the church may not add obstacles. That is not allowed. If anything, insofar as we're able, we should be clearing obstacles out of the way for our friends and neighbors and coworkers to repent and have faith in Jesus. And the big problem with idleness, right, is that when God's people engage in this, it spreads a lie that God is not hard at work. It spreads a lie about his character and who he is. John chapter 5, Jesus says, My Father is always at work, and to this very day I too am working. And Paul's not only concerned with the spreading of the gospel outside the church, he's also concerned with how the gospel is being lived out inside the church. Right? The second reason in verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, work hard so you will not be dependent on anybody. And the thing you need to understand is that, you know, all, all the commentaries I read, they agree this being not dependent on anyone. It's talking about like the system of generosity and kindness within the ancient church. But if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that the early Christians were selling their property and their goods so that the rich among them could care for the poor, and that this was like a really tight-knit community that cared for one another. 
But when you see able-bodied believers who are able to work and to see after their own needs and help with the needs of others, rather than that, like they're eating bread that other people have earned. Paul's like, guys, you're building animosity towards others in the church. You're not building up relationships, you're tearing them down. And this puts a tremendous burden on the rest of the body that is working hard to support them. And Paul actually encourages and, and, and notes the believers who are working hard, and he says, never tire of doing good. Because he knows the animosity that this can breed. But there's actually another aspect to the sin of idleness that we need to take really seriously. Back to 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, mind your own business. I love that language, right? 2 Thessalonians 3, likewise, he says, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. I just want to pause and note, it's actually like a sick burn in like the ancient Greco-Roman world. And what's really funny about this is in the Greek, I can't pronounce the words, but the exact same wordplay happens, you know? Busy and busy bodies, there's like a Greek word that kind of lines up the same way. And I don't know about you, but like I don't throw around the term busybodies very often. But what it refers to is like meddling in the affairs of others, sticking your nose where it doesn't belong. And this is something you find with idleness. When people aren't occupied with their own business, they will come up with something to be busy with. And the truth is like meddling in the affairs of others, this is like a fast on-ramp into like slander and gossip. And these things, guys, like they, they are unbelievably destructive to Christian witness. Because no one, and I mean like no one, wants to hear somebody stab a coworker in the back who's not in the room and then talk about how like Jesus rescued them because they're such a sinner. Right? Because like that makes no sense. It makes no sense. And so as Paul sees the, the damage this idling and this meddling is having on the advance of the gospel, on the community of the church, and on the reputation of the person and the work of Jesus, his concern overflows into action as he leads the church through a formal discipline and restoration process. So here's the thing. It is way too easy to read this passage about a minority of people in Thessalonica and to dismiss them as like sinful and ridiculous and count ourselves among the more faithful. If we do that, however, functionally what we're doing is we're giving into pride and we're justifying ourselves by our actions. And I think we are missing like a key opportunity to grow in the gospel and make disciples. Because we're more like these idlers than we might think. Right? The, the truth is we are all guilty of idleness in one way or another, regardless of whether like, you are a student or a homemaker, an employee, a business owner, a caretaker, a parent, or whatever other God-given responsibilities and blessings you have in your life. And we have all engaged in putting our nose where it doesn't belong. Right? I, I can tell you that preaching the sermon and prepping it for the last month has been like a really convicting process for me. Because throughout my career as an engineer, but also as a husband and a father, <clears throat> I have often sought to be entertained by staring at my phone rather than pressing into like, the blessings and responsibilities God has for me. And rather than understanding that God has purposes in my work to make me more like Jesus and to bless other people, I have often seen it as like a means to an end or something to escape from altogether or something to endure so I can press into like, hobbies and entertainment. Not only this, but I have been guilty of speaking poorly of others when they were not in the room. 
And instead of minding my own business and, and working quietly, I've ignored my responsibilities and probed into the affairs of other people. And guys, like, I, I shudder to think sometimes of the damage I have done to the reputation of the gospel and the damage I have done over the years in my idleness to people inside and outside the church. You see, like, one way the Bible talks about this kind of sin is as debt. Like a debt we owe God. And this debt is infinite, right? Because we have sinned against an infinite God, and we deserve to have God demand what we owe him. We deserve to be condemned in our idleness, our laziness, and our interference with others. Because it's, it's not just that we've robbed others or hurt them. But in our sin, it's primarily against God, and we have tried to put ourselves on his throne, John Stott famously has said that like, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Because what we're doing functionally when we're idle in our work is we're saying we will be the gods of our lives and we will decide what we do with our time and our money and our energy. We will be in charge of us. But the truth is, God as our creator has demands on our lives because we don't belong to ourselves. But the fuller quote by John Stott is this, while the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Like on the cross, Jesus works hard to pay our debt, though he himself owed nothing because he never sinned. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him heaven, forgiving us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Romans 6, 23 makes it clear that the, the legal demand of sin is death. And it is, it is only when we put our trust in Jesus that we are forgiven and God's wrath is satisfied and we are adopted back into God's family. But guys, what's more, and you really need to hear this this morning, the only way we're going to change from being characterized by idleness and sin and instead be characterized by meaningful work unto God's glory is when we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves and grow in it so it takes root in our hearts. You see, like, my degree is in electrical engineering, but my first job out of college, it was in a completely different engineering discipline, and honestly, I found the work really dull. I really struggled to engage with the work, and so I, I constantly found ways to distract and entertain myself, whether it's through like YouTube or games on my phone or hanging out in my coworker's cubicle for like unbelievable stretches of time. I just wasted a lot of time at my job. Right? And at one point, a very accomplished engineer and a brother in Christ cared enough about me to call me into his office had me shut the door and confront me on what I was doing. You see, my friend, he understood that I was beginning to build a reputation on our team. And that that reputation and that action I was taking, it was going to have consequences for myself and our team and for my family. And while I, I'm like so grateful that my friend would care enough about me to confront me on this, the truth is what, what filled my heart as I left his office that morning was fear. Fear that I had wasted all the work I'd done in college to get this degree and get good grades by blowing it with my first job. Fear that I might get a bad performance review or, or lose my job even. Fear that I would lose the approval of my wife or, or my parents or anyone else who found out that I'd done so poorly. And so after leaving my friend's office, I removed all these distractions on my desk, 
I, I changed my desktop background to like this boring taupe color, and I, I resolved to like work much harder from then on. How long do you think that lasted? How long do you think it took before I was back on YouTube? You see, because fear isn't all bad. Fear sobers you up. Fear can help you realize the seriousness of your sin and the seriousness of your situation. But the truth is, even Paul's appeals to like advance the gospel and see your friends, neighbors, and coworkers saved, and seeing the seriousness of that, that's also not enough to change you. Right? These things are important and we should care, but the truth is like only the gospel can change us at the deepest level and transform our hearts. This is the Bible used for like the center of our being, the reason, the motivations, why we do the things that we do. Because like it's only when you see that Jesus worked hard for you and accomplished what you could never accomplish for yourself that your work can be transformed into what it was always meant to be. You see, for me, like, what I really needed in that time of my life is to see that Jesus had continued to pursue me in the midst of my laziness. And despite knowing how like, I would respond to him and all the ways he knew I would dishonor him, he still worked hard to pursue me. And like, while this hasn't been like a lightning bolt kind of moment for me where everything turned around, as I've continued to grow in the gospel over time, I can see that my attitude towards work is changing. And because of him, I'm starting to become the kind of employee and man I want to be, not because I want to impress somebody else, but because like, I'm so grateful for who he is and for what he's done for me. Because he cared about me when I didn't care about him. Like, this is the truth we remember every week as we take communion. You see, the way we, we do communion at River City, like, there's two tables in the back of the room, and if you've trusted Jesus to pay off the debt you could never pay, if that's you, and, and you see him like the forgiver and the leader of your life, then what we're singing later, at any point, um, you can go back and you can take communion, like, dip the bread in the juice and, and take it as a reminder of Jesus' body broken for you and his blood shed for you. And if that's not you this morning, if you haven't come yet to trust Jesus as your forgiver and your leader and your treasure, I just want to say, like, first off, welcome. We are really, really glad that you're here. We want you to be a part of this community and a part of this church. But my encouragement to you is to hold off on taking communion because, like, God isn't after religious rituals. He's after you. He wants you. For some of you, maybe this morning, you're seeing that, like, for the first time, idleness is serious problem in your life. Maybe you're like me and you have a job outside the home. Maybe you find that you're tempted to distract or entertain yourself with your phone or with trivial tasks that don't really move your team forward but just make you look busy. And maybe this is because like, you don't feel like your work really matters or that it's just a means to an end like I did. And the invitation for you this morning is to repent and believe the gospel. See, like, through what Jesus has done for you, you can be forgiven of your idleness. And because of what Jesus has accomplished for you on the cross, you can know for certain that he cares about you and that in his sovereignty and his goodness, he has purposes for your work to build his kingdom and to bless other people. And what you're doing does matter. Or maybe this morning, like you have a young family and you find that the idleness in your work largely happens at home, whether you do have a job outside the home or not. And parents and caretakers, like, we need to remember that if we're constantly on our phone in front of our kids, 
and pleasing ourselves and doing whatever we feel like, that our kids see this. And the idea here isn't to like condemn, but it's because it's absolutely good to have healthy rhythms of like rest and recreation. That is, that is a good thing. But guys, it is, it is so easy to spend all of our time doing nothing. And the invitation for you this morning is to repent and believe the gospel, right? As a parent, I know it is so easy to get to a point where you feel like you have nothing left to offer. But the truth is like in our weakness, God's strength is revealed as perfect. And the invitation is to come to him to find the strength we need to parent well and to reflect the good news about Jesus to our kids with how we spend our time because of all Jesus has done for us. Or maybe this morning you've come to realize that even though you've never used the word busybody before, that it characterizes some aspect of your life. And like, I hope the seriousness of how this behavior can dismantle your Christian witness has really come to settle on your heart. And if this is you, the invitation this morning is to repent and believe the gospel. You see, oftentimes in our idleness and our meddling, what our sin reveals is that we have a heart that doesn't really care about other people coming to know Jesus. But as the gospel takes root in your heart and you begin to see all that Jesus accomplished for you and how he cared about you when he had no obligation to, this can change your heart and make you care about your unbelieving neighbors, coworkers, and friends. The good news here is that Jesus is in the business of making all things new and restoring things, and that includes damaged reputations. Maybe this morning you're just better than me, right? (laughs) Maybe idleness just doesn't really characterize you, right? I'm grateful for you. That's really good. (laughs) (laughs) But the temptation you likely have, if that is the case, is to make an idol of your job. And the Bible's really clear that idolatry, right, it's just as big of a problem. And if that's you, like the invitation this morning is to repent and believe the gospel. Right? Remember that you don't earn your salvation and that your hard work doesn't create good standing before God, but it's Jesus' hard work that creates God and your relationship. And when you were helpless to escape your sin, Jesus died for you as well. And the encouragement Paul gives to never tire of doing good Right? When, you, when you recognize that your good works, insofar as they come from faith, they're not your gifts to God, but they are God's gift to you. That will enable you to be patient with people who do struggle with idleness. And it will encourage you to graciously come alongside those people and encourage them to work hard for the glory of God and to give and live generously with your hard work. You see, when we really start to understand that Jesus paid off the enormous debt that we could never pay, it will motivate us to work so we can bless others the way he blessed us and to work from our identity instead of for it and to adorn the gospel and lend it credibility that we might see our friends, neighbors, and coworkers come to faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. God, um, we need you. We need you to transform our hearts. We need you to see work as a good gift that you give, not like an obligation or a burden. And God, I just pray that like your spirit would move in people now as we sing, as we take communion, as we reflect on what it is you had to say to the Thessalonians and to us. And God, I pray that we would be characterized by hard work for your glory. Amen.